Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the latest edition of On Point. Before I introduce my very special guest uh, today, I just want to say thank you to everyone for your fantastic feedback on our recent podcast on the Conservative Party uh, candidates in the UK. At the time, we had uh, Sunil Sharma and talking through the then five candidates. Now there are two, but just wanted to say a big thank you. Uh, that podcast has gone far and wide. We're returning to New Zealand today, though. We're talking free speech, and I'm delighted uh, to have Jonathan Ailing along. He is the chief executive of the Free Speech Union here in New Zealand, doing an amazing job. I've actually known Jonathan for a good number of years and someone uh, whose work I rate. I think really important for listeners, too, to understand the Free Speech Union is a union, uh, and it is nonpartisan. It tries to work and engage with political parties uh, right across the sector. So, Jonathan, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on. Welcome. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, Simon. It's, it's great to uh, get to sit down with you on your show. We've had you on our podcast a few times, so appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's great to have you here. And for listeners to understand today, we'll obviously touch on some of the, the bigger issues in free speech, but we were going to zone in on, on two areas. One is obviously we've got our local government elections on at the moment and uh, LGNZ, Local Government New Zealand, along with the Human Rights Commission, as Jonathan will well know, put out some guidelines of what candidates should and shouldn't talk about. And the Free Speech Unions had some thoughts on that. And they've also released, again, Jonathan knows all of this, but for listeners, uh, the Free Speech Unions recently released some academic freedom uh, ratings as well. So we're going to touch on the local government elections and what's going on there and on free speech in universities. But to throw you the big question first, Jonathan, why on earth is free speech important? You know, why is, you know, what's wrong with people who say we shouldn't be saying hateful things and hurting people's feelings and saying nasty things? But why, why would we disagree with that? Well, I think uh, I would agree with that statement at a certain level. We we largely shouldn't be saying hateful things or hurtful things, uh, but that doesn't mean we give the state the control to decide what that means or our universities or our journalists the responsibility to decide what that means. These are subjective terms, and really that's the essence of why it's dangerous when we start to set up against people's right to express themselves freely. And so as the Free Speech Union, by no means do we deny that there is hateful speech in our communities and that that speech is harmful. But we're just saying the alternatives to free speech are far worse. And, and we see that in every society around the world across many, many centuries, when we give the power to others to try and control narratives, to shut down perspectives that, that they find offensive or they find harmful or insert whatever a pejorative term you want in there, we see that our knowledge does not progress further, our minorities are actually worse off, and we see intolerance explode. And, uh, you know, some of your listeners will be familiar with uh, Salman Rushdie and the attack that occurred last weekend on this very famous author who had, um, had provoked uh, with his speech and, and, and then has had a horrible attack because of that. Uh, in response to that, we, we contacted our members and said, look, this illustrates the point. The alternative to free speech is violence. And by no means do we condone that, but we're just saying if you try and control people, it's not that you change what they think. You're just changing how they're allowed to say it. And if you put their backs up against the walls, time and time again, we see that it produces a far less peaceful, a far less stable society. 
It's certainly one of the themes I keep hitting on regularly for anyone who listens to me in, excuse me, in Parliament or on my podcast is that we just have to look back to history to mm. see how these things happen. It's sort of the old nothing new under the sun. And we've seen people with good, good intents in the past trying to limit uh, what people can read or say. Uh, it doesn't end well for all, all involved. And it's, it's sad in my – it won't surprise you, but it's sad in my opinion that here in New Zealand um, – we are continuing to look at the likes of hate speech legislation, codes of conduct within our universities and businesses now limiting more and more what people can mm. uh, share. I mean, is it obviously the unions come about because there's a, a widespread concern that you're picking up in the community? I mean, give us a quick history of why. Why do we have a free speech union? Well, the Free Speech Union uh, incorporated about uh, about 18 months ago as a union, but we've been around for a fair bit longer than that. And in 2018, uh, Mayor of Auckland, Phil Goff, decided to bar uh, two international speakers from using a public venue there. And, uh, and that kind of got together a small group of people that saw in our universities, in our local government, in our, in our um, parliaments, and, and just in general across our society, a growing intolerance to allow others we disagree with to, to express themselves. And so then when the hate speech laws came out last year, we, we went from a small group of 4,000 members to 40,000 members in just uh, five weeks, and now we're close to 80. Uh, thousand and 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 we see that across these different sectors of society, there is this um, aversion at best and, and an outright aggression at worst to this notion that those we disagree with should still be allowed to put their case forward. And 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 the, the question that constantly plagues me to our would be censors is how do you think this is going to end? When you, when you when you gag and you censor and you silence those simply because you disagree with them for whatever reason, how do you think that ends? And uh, I don't know the answer to that. My assumption is they think it ends in a utopia where we all get along in social cohesion. Um, and I just don't know for a moment how that they'll come to that conclusion. Uh, you know, this term social cohesion at one level, I think it's I think it's a very bizarre term. It, it sounds so dystopian, I think, actually, to social cohesion. It's something that you'd think would come out of Stalinist Russia. But uh it, 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 the, it, the essence behind it is one I think we can get behind. It's it's where our society cooperates together and tolerates each other and actually stands in some form of unity. I think I think that is important. But what is on offer in the social cohesion that is being pushed by um, our would-be senses is actually no diversity of thought, uh, a very prescribed line of thinking and believing and speaking that ultimately will be the ruin of any sort of liberal democracy and the many liberties that come with that. Yeah, I mean, it won't surprise uh, you that I'm in, in full agreement. I mean, I, I do worry about those. Well, it's actually the, the proliferation of a number of terms now, which always sound quasi-academic. They sound mm. attractive until you, you delve into them. And social cohesion is one of them. In fact, I did a podcast with Sir Peter Gluckman a few months back. Mm. Um, he actually put out a really good piece. I want to stress it, a really good piece on social cohesion. But it was a much well, much deeper thought out um, a cohesion based on plurality, mm, whereas mm. so often now when I look at various organisations uh, in New Zealand, lobby groups, research groups, social cohesion really is a call for monologue. There's only right. one you way. Yeah. Yep. Oh, the other observation too, again, it comes from history. I think firstly we're dealing with fundamentalists. Mm. Um, in other words, they take one part of the truth at the expense of, of all the rest. But I think that sort of, if you will, 
fundamentalism leads to a, a wanton blindness. And I've said to, even to some of my political colleagues who are quite revolutionary, uh, including in sort of the left-wing Marxist sense, it's like you don't sort of realise that the first set of revolutionaries are always taken out by the second. There yeah. is no utopia. Um, you have to become more and more extreme. Uh, and I think we're already seeing hints of that in the likes of social media, but, but the more extreme voices get heard and then to be heard further, you've got to build on that and get, it just gets absolutely crazy, which mm -hmm. comes back to your earlier point of where does this all lead? Yeah. So thinking more locally then, um, having taken us off on like a six, seven minute tangent, which is great. Uh, this is free speech in action, people. Um, we've got local body elections. And in recent weeks, local government New Zealand, along with the Race Relations Commission, has put out a, what do they call it? An inclusive, I'm looking it up here, an inclusive campaigning campaign guidelines. Yes. Yeah. Talk, talk us through this because, it, I mean, when you quickly look at it, it looks lovely, beautiful colours. It's all about being inclusive. Why would we not be? But the more you read into it, there's a few issues. You want to want to talk our listeners through it? Well, that's right. And and so often on the case of these things, like you said earlier, very well-intentioned uh, work has, has been on the surface, uh, inclusion and diversity. It's something I think the vast majority of Kiwis get behind. And, and to stand against that, they go, what is wrong with you guys? Why are you so uh, uninclusive? Why are you so intolerant? And, and I would say, hang on a second, let's just scratch below the surface. And, and when you do that, uh, with a little closer scrutiny, the facade crumbles. And and I believe these guidelines reveal themselves what they really are, and it's an attempt to suppress debate around mm. crucial issues. And and we believe that in this year's local government elections, some really big issues are being discussed, really complex issues. And on either side of the spectrum, if, if someone is telling you that the answer is easy and, and the other side is simply dumb, maybe have a little bit of suspicion about what they're peddling to you because th some of these are really complex issues. But we contend that the only way you can address those complex issues is if you allow all the sides to come together to raise their perspectives and allow the best idea to win out. And, and time and time again, that's how we see knowledge move forward. That's how we see societies progress peacefully is by allowing everyone to throw their ideas in the hat and 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 let's let's let that uh, kind of flesh that out through through d debate, maybe robust debate. But they are words. At the end of the day, they are only words. And through that, I think I have confidence that the voters of New Zealand are mature enough, and on the whole, in the main, are capable of uh, taking that information and and making a, a pretty. Uh, good decision with that. And so I think there's actually a fundamentally anti-democratic view of um, trying to control the debates that we're allowed to have. And and when, you know, the race relations commissioner is, is saying, if you take a, uh, a position that is questioning of co-governance or questioning of three waters, you are a racist and my office will be in contact with you, uh, then I think we've, we've got ourselves in, in some real trouble around uh, whether our voters are going to feel represented at the end of the day and uh, and whether our candidates can be true to their views and actually put forward what they think is is leadership and the best option going forward. Yeah, and I'd certainly encourage listeners, obviously, they can get in touch with the Free Speech Union or myself to get a copy of these guidelines. It's only about four or five pages, but it's it's quite striking that it starts really nicely, you know, respectful, inclusive campaigning. You know, I think most of us go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. 
But of course, what does it mean? And Jonathan, I think you've, you've nailed it. Once you scratch the surface, it actually is pushing very worryingly, very worryingly, a very political, well, particular political agenda. And um, right. yeah, I'm going to pick on co-governance for one. It's a it's a fraught topic. Um, there's many, many different actually respected views from mm -hmm. actually that New Zealand should have a partnership model through to those who who have a very different uh, viewpoint, and even on, if you will, the continuum of views around the likes of the Treaty of of Waitangi. Um, and yet, listening, or sorry, listening, reading these guidelines, you're only, as you say, allowed one view. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing I might also point out, it, it rightly says we should value uh, Te Reo Māori, which of course is, is one of our official languages, um, which is great. What I notice is he doesn't mention uh, sign language either. They have three official languages. It's a small thing, but it's like, oh, okay, if you're going to lecture me and everyone else on inclusivity, why is it that your document excludes a lot of people from our uh, deaf and um, the hearing community? So it just it's a small thing. But, yeah, I just encourage people to look at it. It is insidious, actually. I'm going to use that word because it's very much you have to buy in, and you said it really well, Jonathan. If you do not buy in to Meng Foon uh, and the head of the LGNZ's view on particular issues, uh, you're racist and you are to be excluded. So clearly a problem, but you guys stepped in. Um, you guys have put out your counter one. You want to talk us through that? That's correct. And so uh, the, the guidelines that were released by LGNZ and Ming Foon were called inclusive campaigning guidelines. And so we released our tolerance campaigning guidelines. And, and this uh, term tolerance is, is a fairly uh, loaded one. I think there's a real misconception in popular culture around what tolerance means, because if you would if you speak to a third year um, anthropology student or at AUT and ask them what uh, tolerance means, they would probably say that it means not saying things that are offensive or not saying things that are harmful. And really that's, that's completely uh, abusing that important term. Tolerance is allowing for others who you disagree with. You will necessarily disagree with those you have to tolerate. There's another word, it's called agreement, and you agree with those who you um, are in the same perspective with and you tolerate those who you disagree with. So this is about allowing, like you said earlier, about a plurality of perspectives, different ways of viewing things. And I think tolerance is actually under real assault here in New Zealand, though we may consider ourselves more tolerant than ever. And so we released uh, these guidelines that, that said, actually, Ming, thanks for your work. We don't want to have racism in New Zealand, but shoving this down people's throats and telling them that they can't ask questions, that they can't voice their opinions, it's actually going to make things far, far worse. And time and time again, we see that censorship, that things like hate speech laws or, or gagging, or even just uh, cultural restrictions that, that make people go, oh, I don't think I'm allowed to say that. These things make the issues far worse. And I think we see of course, in other Western nations, uh, in the US, obviously, but even in the UK and, and here in New Zealand as well, polarization that continues to grow in our political discourse. I don't think it's because we're addressing more complex questions than ever before. We've always had complex issues to, to try and come up with. Uh, it, it, it's that we're not allowed to actually just contribute our legitimate perspectives. And I think that leads to polarization. So we've well, released... If I, might, if I might just jump in, I think part of it is actually they are creating an us and them. They rage against mm. it. This is the, the hypocrisy or the paradox in a lot of this mm. work that comes out of the likes of the Human Rights Commission and others. It, it, they say we, we should all just be, well, socially cohesive. And yet 
when you look through their inclusive guidelines and other things, it is creating us and them. You're either with yeah. us, um, they're saying implicitly, or you're not. And if you're not, you're to be uh, chided, derided, labelled, um, excluded all and the time while talking about tolerance. That's right. And that's because if, if you're not with us, you're a bad person. And there's mm. this moralizing that occurs around those that, uh, uh, that whose, whose speech or whose ideas do not fit within a particular, quote unquote, inclusive way of thinking. You are a bad person if you don't uh, express these views. And, and, and ultimately, um, deriding people in such a moralizing way is never going to lead to a better conversation. It's never going to get people on board with your ideas. It's actually just from a strategic perspective, a very bad idea. But but that's why the Free Speech Union released our uh, our equivalent guidelines. And it, it, it says things like play the ball, not the person. When debating issues, don't write off speech of others simply for who is saying it. And I think, uh, you know, that is the tolerant way of looking at it. That is actually the, the, the far more liberal, if I can use that word, way of going, don't, don't label someone just because of their identity, just because of the race or the, the gender or the sexuality that they have. Don't assume you know what they're going to be saying. Don't police language. The way people say their bit is almost as integral to the argument as what they say. So don't force the debate through specific terminology. And one of the ones that, you know, um, I, you know, I think there was a sinister element about Ming Foon and LGNZ's guidelines, but some of them were also just just downright patronizing, saying things like, you know, if, if you, you use te reo language and if you don't know how to pronounce it properly, ask before you use it. And I go, hang on a second. There's a lot of people out there who are doing their best to, to, to try and incorporate this and, and good on them for that. And, and you know, I, I, I grew up speaking several languages. Simon, I know you've, you, you've studied several languages. In New Zealand, though, for the most part, we are largely a monolingual society that's changing. But a lot of people haven't studied other languages in the past. And so when they when they stand up and they're, they're trying to use new terms, they're trying to incorporate te reo in their language, which I think is a positive thing, they're not always going to get it right. And when you've said taupo or tauranga for 50 years, and now you're trying to change that, uh, maybe a little bit of, I, I don't know if this is the right word to use, but maybe a little bit of grace, maybe a little bit of, of just some patience with them would go a long way as well. And I say, actually, if they're doing it, but don't jump down their throat for that. And and I think it, it's, it's, again, it comes down to controlling that narrative. It's very patronizing to try and yep. tell those leaders in our community that are trying to stand up to voice their opinions exactly how to say their bit. And I think actually the long-term effects of that will be, will be quite uh, damaging to our public discourse. Yeah, well, two really quick things on that. Actually, it's a, a, a selfish plug for a much earlier podcast I did actually on that very question of jumping down people's throats about pronunciation. You know, starting with, as you say, one tries to do their best when learning another language to, to pronounce things correctly. But I've argued in that podcast and continue to, to argue or debate that often it's just more about control. Uh, you yeah, know, the basics right. of communication, as, as you will know as a polyglot, um, is it's about, well, understanding. It doesn't matter if you say potato or potato. If I can understand what you've said, the language has succeeded. But a lot of what we see, not all the time, but a lot of what we see now of people uh, jumping down one's throat um, is simply to um, unsteady, patronize, as you say it, I would argue, to sort of control the narrative. You know, why engage the person when you can just argue they've pronounced things wrong? And um, I don't literally do this, but because of it. Yeah. Well, just imagine, though, I mean, for the sake of argument or debate, 
Um, if you know you and I were to be jumping down people's throats every five seconds of the way they pronounce English, is it the New Zealand English or is it the Queen's English? Is it often or often? Um, yeah. Imagine it. Um, and it doesn't create that cohesion. Well, you know, and I think probably in both your life and my life, there, there are a handful of individuals who do that, who usually kind of operate on the peripheral of, of what's socially accepted. And you know what? We usually consider them pretty obnoxious individuals for doing that, right? And and I would say rightly so, because it's unnecessary and largely unhelpful. And so move on. Yeah. Which are, and again, coming back to your truly tolerant guidelines, the first one about, you know, playing the ball and not the person is just so, so important. And I suppose part of the reason this podcast is just to really emphasize that to, to listeners, it's so important because so much now is ad hominem. So much is directed mm-hmm. at the person you touched on it earlier. People are now being deemed as bad people, evil people, wrong people. And you're going, yeah, but what did they say? What, what did they mean? What were they thinking behind that? Have you teased it out? And so often people say, no, no, they're just bad. I don't have to listen to them. Yeah. And so it, what not only is it a very lazy approach, frankly, that's what it is, but ultimately it's a very uh, self-harmful approach. And, and I don't want to uh, distract our conversations too much, but recently some of the uh, reporting that has come out uh, through the, the Fire and Fury documentary and, and other um, characterization with a, a complex subject, there are many different perspectives, many of which are also legitimate. But um, in this documentary that was about uh, the protest that was at Parliament earlier this year, the narrator of it said quite up front from the from the beginning, we do not sit down with those who hold different perspectives here because we don't want to platform their views. And and I would say that is that is such an incredibly dangerous way of thinking that from the outset we deem their views dangerous or we deem their views wrong. And so we'll never actually tease out what they think or understand what they think, which is presumably necessary to then discover whether they are dangerous or not. And so it's it's you're starting at the end. And you, you actually cut yourself off the knees by doing that. Oh, I, I think it's very, it's very dangerous. I mean, there's always a discussion and debate in my mind between if you were giving platform to absolutely what I'd call sort of, you know, batshit crazy ideas. Um, but those are in many ways few and far between. There's quite a continuum of thoughts. And, mm. yeah, I have been, I have, I'm, it's again that monological dynamic which is going on. It's like actually there's mm. only one narrative. There's only one way of perceiving things. Um, and that's just going to be continually reinforced and we will actively block any other views. And certainly when it comes to the, the protests and, and not, let's not go down the rabbit hole of COVID, but there is a continuum yeah. of views. That's um, right. And, you know, we were, uh, the Free Speech Union held a very successful event down at Otago University earlier this week. We had uh, a packed lecture theatre with standing room in the hall only. And uh and there were a, a number, a small, a small group, but a number of people there who who uh, had been approving of the the protest at Parliament. And and something that I'm invested in is, again, going back to where this started. The free speech union is not left right. We're not conservative or liberal because actually free speech doesn't belong to any one party or any one perspective. It's a tool in our hands to move conversation forward. And and what concerns me is there is a group of of individuals now who are maybe associate with free speech a lot more than they have in the past, perhaps now because their speech is being limited. But I ask them whether they are actually now invested in free speech or they're just just invested in their speech being allowed. And and you know, I was I was really disappointed with a number of those individuals that came along to the free speech union event there when Michael Woodhouse, one of your colleagues, mm-hmm. uh 
express why you know he had gone out and spoken to some people at the protest but national didn't formally do that and uh and some of these individuals started heckling calling him disgusting calling him a liar and it wasn't actually engaging with his his uh speech at all it wasn't engaging with his argument at all it was just dismissing him so we see this on both ends of of many spectrums and hmm. ultimately all of us it's very unhelpful well it's um Let's not take you down an academic rabbit hole. So it's called mimetic theory. Uh, I'm a great um, a guy called Rene Girard talks about this. That I'm going to write that down and look it up later. Yeah, that's right. Everyone can go and quickly read up on Rene Girard, wonderful French uh, philosopher and anthropologist. But long and short, he argues that we, we end up mimicking people. We end up um, mm. copying the behaviours of the very people we often don't like. And so, yeah, those people on sort of the more, for me, the fringe of the protest, yelling and screaming, at your speakers are like, well, mm. you're just as bad as the people that you say are censoring you. It's that mimetic. They end up intertwined. They end up very much the same. And it's that dehumanizing element, which I think always worries me. Um, and you've touched on it a few times of how you, the speaker, become the problem, not your words, yeah. you, the yeah. speaker. And it's like, well, hold on. It's one of the reasons when I go around the country and, um, you know, very different views are espoused to me on everything from moral to ethical, right through to obviously COVID and vaccinations. But one of the things I always do is actually your number four in your truly tolerant guideline is let them speak. Have mm. you say? Um, and then it gives me a chance to respond. They go, well, actually, no, I, I don't agree. Um, and more often than not, because it's only me saying this, I don't lose my uh, cool or calm. Those listening go, okay, we've heard both sides now. Who are they going to listen to and, and believe or at least process more? Mm. And in terms of that uh, mimetic theory, am I saying that correctly? You are. Well done. I, I, I would imagine, having not written, read Gerard, that uh, while there is a tendency perhaps where we chase each other to greater base tendencies, where we, we uh, you know, inculcate the worst tendencies of each other, when we put the shoe on the other foot and actually give the other person the time of day and hear them out, we actually probably start to mimic each other in tolerating each other, in actually allowing the other person to have their say. And this is where, um, <clears throat> not to moralize myself, but doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you, it's actually not a bad way of going about life. And when we do that, I think we find we actually humanize each other a lot more. And, and again, another one of our guidelines relates to this. So it said, learn why others believe what they do so that you may better convince others of the truth rather than assuming the worst of them. And I think mm. often, um, you know, even before when, when you referenced those, I think your term was batshit crazy uh, and, and not platforming. Now, of, of, of course, I accept that, um, you know, the free speech union, we are not free, uh, free speech absolutists. We accept that there are some constraints, limited though they may be on speech. But even for those that are, quote, batshit crazy, learning why they think that is often a very telling experience. Mm. And I think uh, even though we may often disagree with others on the extreme, we can find something we do agree with them at the base in their experience and, and what has led them to the way that they think. Those paths may diverge at some point, but at the end of the day, speech, dialogue, conversation, and ability to express ourselves, these are crucial for any of this to happen. Well, one of the things I've learned, certainly in my political life, is the most powerful word is why. Mm. Um, and one of the things I'm struck with, often in public meetings, um, someone, not in all meetings, I better be clear, um, but at some meetings, someone will get up and start espousing an idea, uh, which 
for me and most others would be a little bit nuts. But the, the first, if you will, sentences, the first words come across very articulately, quite um, attractive even. Um, but that's why conversation and free speech is important. I'm often able to say, well, you know, Robert or Mary, um, names made up, by the way, um, why, why do you say that? The fact that they, they have to keep talking and have to try and express themselves, all of a sudden their argument, their ideas unravel, the initial attraction fades away. People go, oh, my God, this, go this guy's nuts. Um, and so, again, it, it's, it's a powerful tool. But can I make the, the point as well? It's not just... Uh, that we learned why others believe what they do. I think that's really important, by the way, to take that that patience and time to go, why do you think this? But I always say when I give lectures at the uni or talks in schools, you, the individual, have to understand why you think the way you do. Mm. Um, and I, I feel there's something missing in society today. People believe things intensely. They emotionally believe things, mm. and that's fine, mm. but they don't know why. And so when you challenge them, they just feel, and you see it most in social media, they just have to yell louder. You go, yelling's not helping. I just need you to explain to me why you think the way you do. Mm -hmm. And it, there's this uh, very Orwellian tendency towards groupthink that um, when you when you combine it with the moralizing and 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 the the you know let's let's not come down too hard at times on things like social justice. There are good impulses there that people are trying to attach themselves to, but often do it through bad tendencies. And so through social justice, through this moralizing, um, I think people kind of find themselves in this bubble. I don't want to use the word uh, sheeple because I think that comes with such a such a um, baggage with it. But, you know, on, on every issue, we do tend to um, associate ourselves with people who think like us. And so how, turning that question on ourselves, why, is, is a very powerful one. Simon, I can see your first political memoir, and it may be one of many, j just that's the title, why? <laughs> why, that's right. Uh, which will only then have two words in it, why not, uh, and leave it at that. <laughs> well, look, look, speaking of memoirs, it's in a, not, sorry, let's be clear, I'm not writing memoirs. There's been a few of those of late by colleagues, and um, let's It'll just be leave it at leadership that. runs at times, so maybe... Uh... <laughs> Well, let's jump into the academic side of things because obviously we've touched on the um, LGNZ and Free Speech Union's response around truly tolerant uh, campaigning, but you've also put out a re uh, recent report around universities. You call it the, well, it is the university's ranking report for 2022. Um, it makes pretty sobering reading when one is meant to think of a university as a place of free speech and ideas and debate. Um, the Free Speech Union, by and large, is saying things are, are not too good here. Do you want to perhaps elaborate? Well, that's right. And, and this piece of work comes out of a, of a survey, a, a piece of um, quantitative uh, data that we did earlier in the year called uh, the Academic Freedom Survey, which both of these work um, pieces of work will be updated annually. And we're just trying to establish a benchmark of the state of play of free speech and academic freedom, which... Uh, different uh, concepts. We can get into that, but uh, we, we want to kind of benchmark where we are at in this nation and, and maybe a little bit of background for why the Free Speech Union is getting into this. Uh, my impression is that in comparison to international countries, the, the civil sector in New Zealand is, is largely um, fairly immature. We, we, we don't have that, that same um, 
uh, buy-in from non-governmental organizations that, that many other um, Anglophonic or Western nations have. And I think that that's come because for, for the most part in New Zealand, we've trusted the government to do the right thing with our rights and with our freedoms. And, and again, for the most part, they have done the right thing. And so we haven't needed these watchdogs that sit around and pontificate, and, and but also importantly, hold the government to account. And, uh, and I think um, not just over the past five years, but certainly over the past five years, uh, a, a portion of, of the society in New Zealand has gone, hang on a second, we need to make sure we're holding our institutions to account, not just within parliament, but across the society. And so, of course, there's been many organisations emerge that attempt to do that in various parts. And so we look at free speech and go, that's the, the number one prerequisite prerequisite for us to move these conversations forward. So with the universities, um, unfortunately, I see our tertiary education institutions as the primary threats to free speech in New Zealand. Um, certainly, hate speech laws and, and other forms of regulation or government intervention are very problematic. But those have come from somewhere. And they've come from a society that through our universities has been taught that others' opinions are to be feared, that they are dangerous, that others disagreeing with your base set of conclusions are hateful. And uh, and so this is why we see, again, like I said, a um, questioning or outright antagonism to free speech. And so earlier this year, we assessed uh, lecturers' own perspective of academic freedom in their institutions. And so this wasn't our opinion. This wasn't the New Zealand public's opinion. This was the opinion of academics within their own institution, the, the senior lecturer at Otago or the professor at Auckland University discussing academic freedom in their own universities. And what we saw come out of that was shocking. It was that uh, many, many uh, academics feel entirely constrained in their ability to operate within the various features of academic freedom that exist. And, um, you know, there were positive elements that came out. You'll be pleased to know, Simon, that uh, most academics felt very free to criticize the government. And that's that's very important in a free society for our, our institutions to be able to criticize our representatives. But there were also some really troubling concerns. 50% of academics uh, of the, you know, we, we, we went out to 17,000 academics in the country. 50% uh, of the academics felt more constrained than free to discuss issues relating to the Treaty of Waitangi. 47% felt more constrained. So this was a scale of one to 10. They felt five or lower uh, to discuss issues relating to sexuality or gender. And, and these are these are, these are complex issues. These are really nuanced affairs, and we need to be careful with how we go about them. But if people can't discuss them, that is a fundamental flaw at the very start. And so in response to that piece of um, quantitative work, we've done this ranking and, and included a qualitative assessment as well, going through each university's policies and seeing how they um, outline or express their defense of free speech. And we've also looked at examples of that and practices. And, and every university has um, areas where it could develop. But uh, as an alumnus of Victoria University, I'm pleased that um, that university continues to uh, set a higher standard than many other institutions for what it means for both student and staff to be able to raise controversial perspectives. And, and a little plug from my end, uh, I sat down with the, the vice chancellor who's just recently resigned and come to the end of his tenure, Grant Guilford, who was there for about 10 years. Um, I sat down with him on our podcast, <coughs> the, the Free Speech Union podcast, and, and unpacked kind of how his leadership has maintained this uh, appreciation 
for free speech at Victoria. But unfortunately, at the other end of the spectrum, um, perhaps your listeners will not be surprised and anyone who's followed the free speech union work will not be surprised that AUT um, was given an F grade. It is the only institution in my mind in New Zealand that doesn't even really care about taking the time to pretend to be invested in free speech or freedom of expression. They, they, they almost are willing to own the fact that they, they will not let their students say certain things. They will not let external parties voice certain opinions or their lecturers. And, and that's almost become part of their pride. This whole, and, and again, a rabbit warren we could get, hopefully not lost in, but uh, this whole rainbow tech status is, uh, is, is, is a really dangerous way of viewing things where these institutions are giving a rainbow tech status of, so we're not allowed to discuss certain issues and, and certain people who voice perspectives are not allowed on our campus. It, for, for a university, the, the one place in the country where you should expect anything really to be allowed to be said or voiced, it's a very troubling set of uh, affairs. Yeah, well, I mean, picking up on that last point, it parallels religious dogma. Um, Absolutely. You know, and I can say this as a, a student of philosophy, theology, and, and history, that, again, we've been here before. Um, we just need to look through of how actually the universities uh, started and fought back against uh, the church of the medieval day to say, actually, uh, we will critique the dogmas and the beliefs of the day. And they, they fought hard for that. Uh, and it's a wonderful tradition that we've, by and large, inherited. And yet now, history repeating itself, um, we, we have, um, or a warning from history, we do have a group of, I often call them activist academics, mm. um, willing to actually buy into a single dogma on particular issues um, and shut anything else out. It's the antithesis of, of a university. And look, AUT is a disappointment uh, to me. I mean, I've written uh, to them around actually banning you guys speaking on uh, campus and, and really questioning the new vice chancellor and others of are you actually a university? If there's no mm. ideas, it's just one single truth being mm. supposedly taught. Well, you're really just an indoctrination camp charging mm. far too much money. Um, to the taxpayer for the most part. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is actually that's a really important point. The universities do remain funded primarily through the taxpayer, so we're, we're paying for censorship. Mm, um, mm. And it, it's it's just incredibly worrying. But I, I suppose one of the things I note both in your report but my own work and research is that when you the, – the, the top-level statements from universities is they are for academic freedom and free speech and they'll point to the general legislation and their own charters. What they don't tend to point us to is that they have this growing plethora of codes of conducts and policies mm, and health and safety reports. All of these appear – designed, well, not even appear, Jonathan, they are being they used are. to shut mm. people down. So you want to sort of, what are you seeing in terms of all these codes of conduct and so forth? Well, uh, I think that dovetails quite nicely with what we were discussing earlier around local government uh, elections and, and council as well, because we see the exact same thing being used there. And it's where, um, I mean, we, we represent employment disputes quite frequently and we go into these employment places and they go, yes, of course, John Smith has the right to say whatever he wants, but our code of conduct says he can't say this, this and this. And the contradiction, the absolute incapacity to, for those two to coexist is lost on them. And I say quite clearly to them, actually, sorry, Bob, you don't have the right in your workplace to put a code of conduct that that contravenes the fundamental rights that are guaranteed by our law. And that, that's why um, free speech 
meshes with many of these other very liberal um, values that we have received from the Enlightenment, but also from before, uh, a little plug uh, for Jacob and Changama's book, Free, Free Speech, A History, uh, Socrates to Social Media. It's, it's a very good book that unpacks the, the roots of, so, uh, of free speech all the way back to uh, antiquity. But, but what we see is that from the Enlightenment, we have had these things like rule of law emerge that say our representatives, which are, uh, which are voted in, democratically, which again is an expression of free speech, uh, a rule of law actually sets a base standard of what we're all allowed to do. And and so, Bob, you're not allowed to use your code of conduct to bash someone around the head for saying something you disagreed with. And and it's the same. I, I am genuinely very concerned for the state of local democracy where we have these, primarily it's bureaucrats, sometimes it is other councillors, but largely it is um, uh, employed, non-elected individuals who then try and control what ratepayers are allowed to hear from their councillors because codes of conduct are used. You're not allowed to scrutinise staff on council, really, because that, that may feel them unsafe or hurt because of the work product that they've produced. The same in university here. They say, well, of course, we, we respect freedom of expression and academic freedom, but our code of conduct says, well, it says otherwise, frankly. That's what it says. It says actually no. And so that's what we're going to refer to. And so it's a question of, I, I, I don't want to get up, too high on my soapbox here, but uh, it's a question of democracy, really. It's a question of the rule of law and these really basic freedoms that we've come to express. And, and that's why I constantly say free speech is not simply a liberty like many other liberties that we enjoy in a liberal democratic nation. It is the foundational liberty on which our perspective of, of freedom of the academy, of freedom of conscience, of freedom of religion, of freedom of the press, all of these come from the idea that we should be allowed to say what we think. And and so to strike at free speech is not just to take down one of our freedoms. It really challenges whether we want to live in this liberal kind of, in, in that general sense, this, this society that believes in the freedom of its citizens. And going back to your point earlier, you were talking about the, the religious dogmatic nature of opposition to free speech in the past. I would say, thank God, and I don't say that blasphemously, thank God that hurt was done to the Catholic Church. You know, the ideas that Galileo and Copernicus raised really hurt the Catholic Church, to use that term that is thrown around so often now, you know? And I say free speech hurts. It does, mm. but not in the way violence does, not in the way that killing someone does. It hurts ideas. It hurts concepts. It challenges assumptions. And the the, the ideology or the theology or however we want to characterize that of the, of the Catholic Church in the Middle Age, it was very hurt by Galileo daring to say that the earth wasn't the center of the universe. And and for, for our, our would-be censors today to now go, well, we can't have speech that hurts. Speech, the very best speech hurts the most. It, it tears down our ideas that are not worthy of being held. And it's the only way of us actually assessing which ideas are worthy of being held. But I want to draw a really thick line there because it is a totally different thing between the hurt that comes by violence, that is the actually the opposite of free speech. Yeah, it's it's how we grow. I mean, this is the paradox. We have people who term themselves as progressives, and yet what they're arguing for is stagnation. There can only be one way. Yeah, it's bizarre. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful analogy of a sculptor uh, chiseling away at the marble, and he talks about it's the blows of the hammer which makes us perfect. Uh, now, to be clear, he and nor I are referring to a utopianism, but actually to build these beautiful statues, to build a truly tolerant, liberal, open society, there are blows of the hammer. 
uh, mm. figuratively. Um, yeah, there are things which hurt. I mean, I'm sure, and we're not going to get into it, but there'll be things that you and I have been <clears throat> challenged on in the past, which figuratively hurt. And you go, oh gosh, I've really got to take that away. But perhaps That's it's right. the last question, because a lot of what we've been talking about is it, it should be blindingly obvious to people that trying to dictate a way of thinking um, doesn't work if you flip it around the other way. As I often say to people when they come to me and say, oh, New Zealand should have a written constitution. I say, oh, that's great. Um, is it me writing it or you? Yeah, yeah. Because if, if it's me, I love the idea. <laughs> precisely. But yeah. they, they don't seem to get it. Even when I've debated with academics, activists, council bureaucrats, even in the parliament around codes of conduct, it's like, well, what happens if I get to write it? Mm. Um, oh, oh, well, no, no. no. And you go, they can't seem to do, Jonathan, the most basic thought experiment, which is, flipping things around. I mean, why do you think there's this willful blindness? Um, why? Yeah, um, I, I think, uh, well, I mean, there's so many aspects of it. Jonathan Haidt writes uh, a very good book with um, Greg Lukanoff called Coddling of the American Mind. And this it's, it's a slightly dated piece now. It came out about five or six years ago. But in it, there's this general premise around what's called anti-fragility. And, and, you know, we, we're familiar with the concept of fragility. I have a, a glass of water here. If I knock it off the table, it will break because it is a fragile thing. But then there are other things that are anti-fragile, like our immune system. Actually, if we expose our immune system to, uh, to uh, germs, it improves, it grows stronger. And he contends that our ability to deal in social contexts it's anti-fragile. We need to actually have that back and forth, those bangs of the hammer, uh, like you said earlier, um, to, to actually develop them. I think we've lost what it is to uh, roll with those punches, if I can mix my metaphors now. Um, you know, what, what I find interesting are the very people who were wielding that hammer maybe 30 or 40 years ago uh, through using their speech to provoke social change and now often the same communities that are actually wanting to stop the hammer being used because they have now taken the power. And I think, um, not to be too philosophical, uh, but I think that that's where it comes down to. You know, I, in terms of you're saying uh, areas of, of, of um, thinking where I've changed, just recently in leading this organization, I deal with um, real out-and-out -out Marxists. And those aren't people I had really come across before. And and uh, I, I'm privileged to work with some of my council members. We have people on the right and people on the left. And, and some of the, the individuals on the left are Marxists. And I really appreciate the blows that they bring to my marble. Um, you know, <laughs> it, it's, not, it's not that I agree with them the vast majority of time, but on one or two points, I go, hang on a second, that's really interesting. And it, it, it's this conception of power, uh, the, this way of, of viewing um, that uh, politics is about grasping that power, and it's it's not a perfect conception. But I would I would say, why have we ended up in this space? I think it's because there's a portion of our society that have used free speech to climb up the ladder and have pulled it up behind them so that someone else doesn't go beyond them. And and I think um, in the short term that seems very uh, rational uh, in terms of us promoting our own. Um, intellectual genes, if we can put it that way, in terms of evolution. But but it, it, uh, again, a brief knowledge of history shows that it's a very self-destructive way of thinking. And you may preserve your place in power for a year or 10 years, or maybe even your lifetime, but you condemn your children to a far less stable, far more violent, far less progressive uh, society. And so uh, there is 
you know, we've kept on talking about the liberalism at play within free speech. There is a conservative way of thinking about free speech as well that says step by step we'll get there. Slowly, slowly we build on each other's uh, arguments and disagreements and we progress together. And I would say I would rather progress together slowly, slowly through free speech, through deliberative uh, argumentation than to grab power, to do all the things that I want and then realize that I actually wasn't completely right. And that's why I keep on insisting Free speech is a very humble enterprise. I, you know, I don't think I'm wrong. None of us actively think we're wrong, but I'm, I'm very willing to admit I could be wrong. And I think that's a, a key differentiating feature than those who oppose free speech, where they say it is impossible that I could be wrong. Again, it just reflects that us and them mentality. Mm -hmm. I'm right, you're wrong. Uh, I'm good, you're bad. It's again very... Divisive, but it also reflects again, as I sort of wrap up around the whole mimetic theory, people often become the very things they rage against. Mm. Um, and you're right, I think we've seen a lot of power who are uh, people rather who have preached about power um, over the years, <clears throat> have now got it, said, oh, this is pretty nice, uh, mm. as they pulled up, pulled up the ladder. Um, <clears throat> and the other part of it too, though, and it's a, I, I see it as a challenge to myself and others, particularly in the political realm, is a lot of people have drunk the Kool-Aid around Marxist notions of power and go, gosh, you're right, power, bad, yeah. We, we shouldn't have power. And good people have abandoned the field. Um, <laughs> and we then had another group come in who said, oh, we'll take that, thanks very much, and yeah. are not sharing it in the way that they philosophically or theoretically said uh, they would. So it's just human nature repeating itself. Um, but this will take us down massive tangents. Jonathan, a huge... Thank you for you coming on board and understandably speaking uh, freely across a range of issues. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jonathan Ayling. He is the chief executive of the Free Speech Union. I encourage you to check out their website, their online presence, their reports, and particularly of late, uh, their one on truly tolerant campaigning uh, and on the universities. And again, Jonathan, great to have you here on On Point. Thanks, Simon. It's been a pleasure.